Amen. So we're in the uh, fifth, uh, fifth, I believe, yeah, fifth um, installment of our series, Possessions. Last week, Robert, Robert preached a sermon called It's About Life, and he talked about what did it look like if money mastered you versus if you were to master, master money. And uh, that was a great, really practical word that he gave there. He's also doing a, a money workshop on November 12th that I encourage everybody to go to, whether you feel like you're a beginner or you're advanced in, in finances. Um, it's just gonna be a great opportunity uh, to, to learn more and workshop. You can sign up for that uh, just by emailing us. It's a $15 cost that imp- includes food and childcare because uh, we want families to be able to, to go to that as well. Um, and, uh, and also, you know, there was so much going on with Amanda Wig being installed as an elder and different things like that. I never got a chance to just say how great it was to hear our own uh, Lonnie Lewis, our elder, preach a few weeks ago. Yeah, now it's almost a month ago. So uh, my, my wife and I were at a, a couple's uh, therapy uh, intensive that weekend. And, uh, and Stacy was the liturgist and, and Lonnie was the preacher. And I said, man, what great hands for our, our congregation to be in. So I was really thankful for that and thankful for the word that he brought. So up to today, this series on possessions and the S is uh, in parentheses. And the idea there is that we have possessions, but we can also be possessed by the things that we own. And it reminded me of a story in Luke that Jesus told, the Gospel of Luke that Jesus told about a man who had an evil spirit driven from him, but he just swept and cleaned the interior of himself, and that evil spirit went out and found and found um, seven other spirits more evil, and uh, they came in and inhabited this person. And it, that story made me think so much about money and our spirituality. Uh, Because so often the idea of our financial state and how we think about money and all of the things that are tied to it get separated out from our spirituality. And the ironic thing about it is, is that Jesus talked more about money than almost any other subject in the four gospels, which tells me if we are to avoid that topic or we only talk about it superficially, uh, then we're doing a disservice to one another, to our congregations, and to our own spiritual lives, which impacts the way we see or don't see the kingdom of heaven among us. Amen to that. Amen. Amen's there. So this morning, this passage from Jeremiah is about the welfare of a city. And the wordplay there in my title is intentional, city welfare, welfare of a city. Um, and he, this city is not a city that is a friend of the people in it. They're exiles. They had to go to this city under a people that conquered them, and they're trying to figure out how they're going to live their lives there, and if they're going to face the reality of their current circumstances, or are they going to believe all these other prophets and voices that tell them everything's the same as it always was. You're going to go back to your home soon. Everything's going to be all good. All your, all your houses and your finances, everything's going to go back just the way it was. God's blessing you. And that's what time it is right now. And that's the only time it ever is. 
And in the midst of that, this prophet Jeremiah has this message of grief and of endings. You know, you, you ever seen somebody that is on Beale Street or something like that, that has the sign that's saying like the end is near kind of thing or, or anywhere, you know, in, in a big city or in the country for that matter, holding up those kind of doomsday, the end is near signs. Seen those? It feels really uncomfortable to even walk past that person, right? Because you don't know what they're going to say to you or what they're going to try to get you to do or whatever. You know, like it's funny to be in that position as a pastor when there's somebody that says like, repent or go to hell. And I'm like walking around them like that. I want to say like, I'm a pastor. Don't <laughs> leave me alone. The problem is those people are right. They're right. The end is near. Now, what the end is, is different in different parts of our lives, in different parts of our society. But I can promise you one thing, that things are ending in your life. And there are things you don't necessarily want to end because we get attached to our views of reality, our perspectives, and our ways of doing things to the point that it becomes detrimental to us to where we've lost sight. At one point, this way of seeing the world, this way of handling our relationships, our finances, whatever it is, our view of the United States or the city that we live in, our family, you name it. There was a point in which that view of reality helped us to survive. It helped us to make it through that period of time. But that time is over. And what happens is we get confused we think it was that thing that is what's causing us to be able to survive in the present, when really it only helped us to survive in the past and now it's hindering us in the present. Every one of us have these things in our lives. Um, we just watched for the second time in a couple of weeks the Disney movie Moana. Oh my gosh, that shows you kind of how far behind we are in pop culture wise, because that's like, that's new and fresh to us. And I love this movie so much. I love every second of it. I even love that during the very beginning that the Disney castle, it's shown the Disney castle, but you can already hear like the beats and the drums and the oh, you know, all the, the grandma singing or whoever it is, the ancestors singing. And this relates so much. I mean, there's, there's a million life lessons in this movie. If you miss a Sunday and you don't want to do the Facebook Live, which failed this morning because Mandy's not here. Um, but uh, sorry, Mandy. <laughs> but um, there's a million life lessons. So if you ever miss a Sunday, just watch Moana and then, and then look for the life lessons in it, okay? So, so in, in this story, there is, there is a village on this beautiful island and, and the village's daughter is Moana, and she's in line to be the next chief. And the whole first 20 minutes of the movie is the dad trying to convince Moana to just accept her role as chief and how they have everything they need and everything is all good in their life there on the island. But Moana's grandma, another generation back, shows her that there is this poison seeping into the island. 
and that this poison is going to eventually affect everything, every part of their way of life. But the dad is totally resistant to this, wants to ignore the history, wants to ignore what's happening on the edges because he's afraid of the change, because he's afraid that when in his past, he had a friend or a brother, I can't remember, and he went out often to sea and he died. And so even though there is this poison, this hurtful thing seeping into the island, Moana's dad doesn't want to look at it and doesn't want to see it. And because of that, the whole village is going to suffer. But Moana, with her prophetess self, knows she's called to something bigger, knows that she is to be involved in the new change that's got to come, and it's going to be perilous, and it's going to be completely uh, uncharted territory, or so they think in the beginning, and she has to set off to figure out how to make things right. And Jeremiah is in a type of situation like this, where the current state of things for his people, all the people want to believe that the place that they're in, the way the world is working for them at that moment needs to be protected at all costs. And Jeremiah spends the better half of the second longest book in the Bible telling them it's ending. And he's grieving and he's crying and he's and he's trying to convince them through whatever poetic language that he can muster and find that the end is near. And almost nobody listens to him. So when we're talking about this series on money and possessions, this touches all of these things. It's, it's so related to the way that we see the world, to the things that we think will save us, to the things that we think are the solution to a survival mentality versus a free and open, um, full life. And we have a choice when the light is shown on those things to step into the light, to let those things be seen for what they are, so that we can abandon them and move on, or we can chase shadows. So in verse one, this is what the text says in verse 29. Go with me there. This is the text of the letter that prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Right away, there's something that sticks out to me. Jeremiah doesn't even address the king. He doesn't address the socio-political and spiritual leader of his people and his culture. He addresses everybody else in hopes that they will have the courage to see the thing that the royalty, that the guard, whether Democrat or Republican, whether liberal or conservative, refuses to name and refuses to look at. So the people here have been conquered by this mammoth beast of a nation called the Babylonians. And the Babylonians, they made lots of war and they accumulated other nations and they had a big, robust, vibrant culture that was 
in antithesis in a lot of the ways to the tiny nation of Judah, the split up Israelites into northern and southern kingdoms. And these Babylonians were coming for Judah. And we're looking at a time here in which they've already overtaken um, Judah and, uh, and Jeremiah is talking imaginatively about what it's gonna be like for them because they've been driven from, uh, they've been driven from Jerusalem and Judah and been forced to live in Babylon. Okay, so this is part of the story of like Daniel, you know, the book of Daniel, those, that's part of that story. And so all these folks are out there and they're living this life that they didn't want to live. And Jeremiah is predicting all these things. He's talking about all these things. And in the middle of it, life is going on as normal. People who are wealthy and who are upwardly mobile are acquiring more goods. They're acquiring more wealth. They're continuing to live their best life. And Jeremiah is saying, doom, the end is near. Change your ways. And they're like, Psh, don't you see? I just bought another plot of land. Like I just got the hookup over here and like my career is going like this, baby. I'm not trying to hear all that. And, and in the meantime, the prophets from the temple, the prophets from all the other aspects of Judean life are saying those same things. God's blessing you. We've got the temple. We're doing the right kinds of rigmarole and, 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 and rituals and things. There's no way any of that bad stuff's going to happen to us. And Jeremiah says, doom. Listen to this, um, this quote from the uh, writer Walter Brueggemann, incredible theologian. He's written over 100 books. It doesn't matter which one you read. Um, they're all incredible. Listen to his synopsis of what it was like for Jeremiah at this time. Jeremiah lived in a time of turmoil. He believed it was a time of dying. He envisioned the death of a culture, a society, a tradition. He watched his world dying and he felt pain. What pained him even more was the failure of his contemporaries, those who lived at the same time as him, to notice, to take care, to acknowledge, or to admit. Jeremiah's testimony is a tale of grief. The occasion for the grief is the quite public matter of the death of Jeremiah's city, his culture, his value system. The grief is poignant because his contemporaries do not notice. They do not notice because they are too busy, too sure, too invested, too ideologically committed. They misread so badly. This holy God whose patience they try, they count on the promises of that very God. The old promises sound to them so sure. Jeremiah thinks he knows better, thinks he knows that the promises are not so unconditional as to preclude the loss and the grief and the death. You see, any time somebody talks to you about a God that only ever wants what's ever happened to keep happening, that only 
speaks of your uninterrupted sameness of prosperity, sameness of worldview, sameness of love of country or political party or whatever it is, something begins to rot, to die away. And it's not a message that many preachers, that many Sunday school teachers, that many folks that write books or on TV are willing to say. In the first chapter, Jeremiah chapter one, verse 10, this is what God says to Jeremiah. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to tear down, to destroy and overthrow, and yes, to build and to plant. There are things in your life, in your way of thinking and operating that God wants to pluck up and destroy in my life. And the job of a prophet is one of the worst jobs. It's one of the absolute worst jobs because the job of a prophet is to try to get people to see something that they think is the absolute worst thing for them to have to look at in their lives. For some of us, that's looking at our bank account statements or making a budget. For some of us, that's to look at the neglected areas in our own lives, in our own hearts, or even to look at what we ate in the past week. Oh, we ate Sonic last night, and I was not doing well all through the night and, and waking up this morning. And it shows you, you know, I'm about, I'm turning 40 uh, next month. So, you know, you just can't do that kind of stuff anymore. Beware if you're not there yet. A pastor's job is similar to a prophet's job. A pastor's job is to help people to change and to desire change in a way that they really don't think they need. And it's really, it's, it's, it's a tough job. It's, it's very difficult. And, and in, when you're, when you're, preaching the words of the prophet, you kind of combine those things at the same time. You know, those, those kind of things work together. Will you, can I convince you to look at this area of your life that nobody, if you will hold on for dear life, not to look at it and put it in the light and let somebody else look at it with you and talk to you about it, whatever that might be, whatever that thing is that pops into your head when I'm saying that, that's the thing that most needs to be in the light could be anything. And then on top of it to say, and now something's got to change. Oh, can't you just tell me if God forgives my sins and Jesus died on the cross and I can just get my sins forgiven every time and go about doing all the same crap that I've been doing? Can't you just say that, Jamin? No, I can't. I can't do it. He did do that. But it's so you could live the Moana life the abundant life on the sea and meet Maui and all the colorful cast of characters and talking animals. All right, that went a little too far. But I love that movie. In, in, our, in our world uh, and in our life and in our culture, we, we are, and none of us created this, but we're living in an unsustainable world. Every, every person who studies what's going on is telling us that. 
And I see in our culture here, as few as we are, that we're making small strides and small ways of trying to live a little bit more sustainably and interdependently. And I think all of those things matter so much because the level of individuality that we have in our culture is is sucking up so many resources so fast. And the scientists, not the prophets, the scientists are telling us the end is near. And we're like, bro, housing market's on fire. I know I'm stepping on toes. I know. It's, It's like there's this verse that when I was 21 and I was reading the book of Jeremiah um, that it, it talked about, it's, Jer- it's Jeremiah 29, 11, chapter 29, verse 11 is the one that says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and so on and so forth. That's all written on everybody's everything, right? Yeah, the rest, the rest of Jeremiah is like doom first And then once you've accepted and grieved the loss of your whole culture and your whole way of doing things, then hear this word. But we skip all that. But the other verse is actually Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9 through 11. And it says, your word is like a flame shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. And on this, on this type of subject, that's what I feel like. That's, that's how I feel about the world that we're living in, the, po- the signs that point to. I don't know what all to do about it, and neither did Jeremiah in his time, but I know we got to talk about it. And not to point fingers, but to figure out what is it that God is birthing that is new, that is new, that is different, that is new, that is unsettlingly new. There's a a journal, The Atlantic. Anybody read The Atlantic? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a magazine, a monthly magazine, and it's an incredible just journal on all aspects of American life, and they have uh, writers across the political spectrum. And this pretty conservative writer wrote this article. Uh, it's about a 20-page article um, about five years ago, four years ago, and it's called The guy's name is David Brooks, and he wrote this article called The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. So that means like just living with your your wife or your husband or whatever with kids in your own house on your own property, which is how all of us live, right? Said it was a mistake. And I want to read to you what he says about it. It's 20 pages. I'm going to read you a paragraph what he says about it. If you want to summarize the changes in family structure over the past century, the truest thing to say is this. We've made life freer for individuals and more unstable for families. We've made life better for adults, but worse for children. We've moved from big, interconnected, and extended families, which help protect the most vulnerable people in society from the shocks of life, to smaller, detached, nuclear families, a married couple and their children, which give the most privileged people in society room to maximize their talents and expand their options. The shift from bigger and interconnected extended families to smaller and detached nuclear families ultimately led to a familial system that liberates the rich 
and ravages the working class and the poor. That's bad news. That is terrible news for Christians who believe in a gospel where the Messiah says, I have come for the year of Jubilee to liberate and to save the poor and the downcast and free those who are enshackled and enslaved. That's bad news. I don't think the biggest war in our country is actually about Republicans versus uh, Democrats or conservatives versus liberals, although those battles are important. I, I, think it's, I think it's worship of money. I think it's worship of comfort and goods. I think that's what dominates the underneath, the subtext of so many of these struggles in our world. And so within this paradigm that the people, God's people, the people of Judah are living in, Jeremiah is saying the way you have been living is unsustainable and God's going to tear it down, going to pluck it up. And then he says, and then you're going to go live somewhere you don't want to live in a way you don't want to live. And I want you to seek the prosperity of those people in that situation, in that life. This is human history. I mean, this happens all the time. How we respond to it is what matters for us. So verse four says this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. AKA, this is gonna be for a long time, y'all. You're gonna be in exile, not living in your home, not living with your customs of the things you're accustomed to for generations. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you to into exile. The people that you hate, that took away everything that you love, seek the peace and prosperity of that city that you live in. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. See, for all of Jeremiah's poetic language, all of the things that we could chalk up to the ravings of some abstract prophet. He understood something key and vital that we need to understand today. And that's that our economic conditions are not just personal, but they are communal as well. That eventually things come full circle. And we get little tastes and previews of that in our lives, but sometimes Sometimes in, in the, the flow of time, those things come to our front door in a way that we can no longer ignore. Will we be caught by surprise? Will we say, nobody ever told me about this? Why didn't somebody tell me that things were changing? I was caught off guard. Or will we face and start to look at things 
that are very uncomfortable to look at. God calls us to see our resources and our finances as part of a whole well-being of the place that we live, our cities, our neighborhoods, not just for us personally. And this is overwhelming, is it not? To think about these things on this scale. I know, and I'm sorry. I don't want to say it in an overwhelming way. I don't want it to be overwhelming on the cusp of SCS's fall break, but that's where the lectionary landed this morning. And the flames shut up in my bones, y'all. Um, there are small steps that we can take. There are small steps that we can take to live in a way that is more conducive to what Jeremiah is preaching about, what the gospel says. The gospel says you have to grieve your old way of life. It's not a, hey, just let me run in real quick, confess my sins and get back out there and do the same old crap. It's a grieving of the state of our world that lives in a selfish and unsustainable way in which the poor are trodden down upon, in which we can be so busy and so fixated on the trajectory of our upwardly mobile lives that we don't stop to see what's happening to the rest of the world. So there, um, one of the ways, and I've shared this before as we get to the last, we've got about five minutes here left, so hang on. Um, I've shared this before, but there's different ways that we are in relationship with ourselves and, and the world around us and God. There's three different ways on the screen, independently, living independently, codependently, and interdependently. Okay? So, independently is the way we've all been trained to live through everything we've heard and not heard, everything that we've seen, which means that my decisions in my life don't have anything to do with anybody else's, and I'm just trying to strike out for me. I'm trying to get the best I can, and anybody that maybe is in my nuclear family and maybe like one generation out, I might hook them up a little bit too if that kind of shakes out good for me. And I'm gonna live that way, we're super independent. And that's the way we're taught to live. Even if it's not said explicitly, that's our culture. When, when our culture is uh, measured by sociologists in terms of individuality versus collective thinking and, and acting, we are the most in the known world, the most highly independent culture up in the 90s out of a 100 point scale. Right? And, and the majority of the world lives below the 50% mark is how big the gap is. The second way is codependently, which most of us live this way to some degree or another, but it basically means like I'm scared. I'm scared of what you might feel or think about my choices. And so I'm going to sort of like mold my choices to make sure you're not upset with me. I'm gonna to try to get my insides to match your outsides. And you might not think that has to do much with this, but it absolutely does. Because all those other prophets in Jeremiah's time that were preaching peace, and guess what? Even when we go into exile, guess what they started preaching? We're gonna be back in a year. Jeremiah said, nope, children, have children. They're gonna have children. They're gonna be able to plant some trees because they're gonna be sitting under the shade of that tree right there in Babylon. Babylon. 
right? So the rest of the preachers, the rest of the prophets, the rest of the leaders told you what you wanted to hear because didn't want to make you upset. I don't want to make you upset. I don't want you to start tithe, stop tithing or stop giving to my church or stop doing the things that kind of keep the same thing going, right? Inter interdependently is the third way we've got independent, codependent, and interdependently. So interdependently is when we recognize that we need other people and we act accordingly in a, in a healthy way. So let me give you an example um, of what that would sound like or look like in, an, in a relationship. Codependency is an unequal partnership or relationship that puts one person above the other. Somebody else has power because you're afraid of their feelings. You're not on equal ground. Interdependency requires both people or both parties to be able to operate autonomously. So I might have to say something you don't like. I might have to do something that you don't like. That doesn't mean we can't work together. That doesn't mean we can't find common ground. In a healthy relationship, a couple or two parties will feel closely attached and intertwined, but still capable of making their own decisions. Codependent sounds like, I need you, I can't live without you, you complete me. That could be for a person, that could be for a financial status, that could be for a career, it could be for a lot of things. I need you, I can't live without you, you complete me. Interdependent says, I want you, and we make a great team, and I'm glad you're my partner. See the difference there? Flexibility there? So, the truth, independence is not the truth. Even if you think, I'm a really independent person, you're not. The truth of life is we all live interdependently. We all need resources, help, guidance, viewpoints from other people, for our, and we also need them for our food, we need them for our transportation. Have you guys driven on par these parts of Poplar lately? Man! I feel like I'm in a limousine when I hit those spots where they repave the roads. Hallelujah. Benjamin's like, What's, why is it so smooth, Dad? I'm like, Benjamin, I've never experienced this in my life driving on Poplar. We need each other for so many different things. And that's what Jeremiah is trying to help these people see trying to help these exiles see. You had your way of doing things. You thought God was just gonna approve of your life, approve of your lifestyle, just uninterruptedly, no matter what you did, because you were profiting in these certain kind of ways. And Jeremiah says, you're gonna have to learn to realize how we all, whether you call someone a friend or an enemy alike, we're all in this thing together. See, some of us already know, we might have known from the first five minutes in this sermon, something that needs to be pushed into the light and disinfected in our way of thinking and seeing reality. You probably already know. It might take you a while to act on it. By the grace of God, I hope that you do. It's painful. I'm here. We'll, I'll, I'll, I'll go through it with you. I've been through so many of those painful experiences in, in the past several years. I, I'm with you. I know how much it hurts, and I ain't done. I'm, I still got a lot I want to push into the light. Um, so we can, we can begin to do that. We can begin to face some of those things. And I want to give you some things to help you get started. In fact, 
on the back table, on the connect table, I printed out some sheets that actually Becky created uh, back in 2018 when we were doing a Create Beauty uh, sermon series. And it's on some practical ways that you can live more sustainably and you can shop and do things more ethically. And I also want to say uh, some of the things that uh, are happening at our church, like the women's clothing swap. This is just a small step of living more interdependently and, and not having to be so individualistic with all of our decisions. We have uh, uh, children's clothing that can be swapped out now on the second floor in the nursing room for all different ages, and Mandy got that uh, organized and, and situated there. Uh, we have our Mercy and Justice uh, uh, team and the partnership with Micah, which is all about all the organizations of the city working together in order to make a more just city in Memphis. Different churches, different denominations, mosques, synagogues, uh, nonprofit organizations. In fact, in fact, on um, Wednesday, I'm hosting. We're hosting. Christ City's hosting. I'm leading a clergy. A caucus group luncheon from 12 to 2 for all the clergy members within Micah to pray and to plan and to support and encourage one another. These things are all available in our, in our church, our soup kitchen. It's a way of understanding and realizing the interdependence that we have. All those things are already going on. I remember seeing, I peek on Becky's phone sometimes to see the, what the women's group me saying, because they all have just got it hot over there. It's always running. There's always stuff going on. And uh, it's, it's tumbleweeds on the dudes. So, um, and Brenda was like, let's do like a buy nothing thing like in person. And I'm like, yes, I was going to suggest that. And Brenda's already there. Like those kinds of things. And, and I'm going to give you one more and then I'm going to close for today um, to do with money. Banking. Okay. So do you know the difference between a bank and a credit union? A credit union is not a bank. It is a nonprofit organization that builds the wealth of the community and all the other people that put their money into that source. And there are credit unions. There's Orion Federal Credit Union. There's Hope uh, Credit Union here in Memphis. And both of those banks, when you put your money, they're not banks, those unions, when you put your money into them, they uplift ever so slightly our city and our community. And, and people with less economic uh, wherewithal than what we have. Those are some of the things that uh, I, I just want to touch on today. So, in closing, what Jeremiah tried to get people to do was see that the grief needed to occur. And if they were willing to grieve and willing to see what they did not want to see and begin to think about the change that they didn't want to make, then the hope of the new reality for what it was could appear, could, could begin to work and to thrive. I hope that we can do that as we move forward together, as we come corporately to the table. Let's pray.